<clears throat> We're on chapter 9 now, and um, also just because we have kind of a new group who's joined us practically halfway, midway, there are 18 chapters in the Gita, we're kind of just at the <laughs> point where we have to see where this energy is going to resolve. I think it's helpful for us to come back to the context of the Gita itself. I'd like to bring our friends here also just up to speed from that perspective because we're not studying the Gita as, oh, Krishna is so amazing and Krishna is great and we all must worship Krishna. Um, Paramans Yogananda, our guru, his interpretations of the Gita uh, surround first and foremost his entire spiritual interpretations of the Mahabharata because the Gita is an essential part of the Mahabharata. It doesn't exist as a separate reality. It's not that oh, what Krishna said during the Gita is completely separate from what else was going on. So it's important to understand the Mahabharata once again for those of us who have been for the last 36 odd classes been on this journey. Uh, is to recognize the way our Guru shared these interpretations with us is that the Mahabharata is the story of the soul's descent from pure spirit into matter. And so the entire hierarchy, all the individuals, they are qualities and psycho-spiritual aspects of our consciousness. So Shantanu represents spirit, Ganga represents the Om vibration, they have come together, their children, finally you get Bhishma, Bhishma represents the first separate identity away from God, which is the ego, then so on and so forth, Pandu represents discrimination, Dhritarashtra, the blind king, represents the mind that does not have discrimination, and then the Pandavas represent the five chakras, Krishna represents, of course, the sixth. Draupadi represents the Kundalini that must unite with all five. Then you've got the Kauravas. They represent the downward pulling forces inside us, led by Duryodhan, is it? I keep getting those names. <laughs> Who Yogananda called King Material Desire, which means somewhere outside myself, I will find fulfillment. And the army of the Pandavas represent the energy led by the chakras, but that moves upward through them. So this fight that we find ourselves in is this entire story of how little by little consciousness begins to coalesce, take form, become completely matter-based, gets completely involved in matter as we are, and then comes the point where the devotee wants to return back into spirit. And in order to return back into spirit, there's a battle that's needed because we're so entrenched in the kind of hypnosis of this world that you're going to have to, like a rocket that needs to be shot into space, it's going to have to put out a lot of fuel in the opposite direction to push it up. It's not just, oh, I want to be in space because I want to just flow freely. But you have to put out a huge amount of energy to get to the point where you could float in that joy, in that bliss. And so this is what this battle is about. And Arjuna, who is really us, like us, we want to join into spirit, but we don't really want to let go of our, our lower qualities. What? I want to be lazy. And I still want to have, you know, everything that I want and my comfort and my car and my, you know, whatever, my relationships that should be just the way I like them 
this is the fulfillment I need from this, from that, but I also want God. So we're at usually at that stage where I want God, where I want higher principles, I want to experience something that's more than, but I'm not quite ready to let go of everything else. So we're in the kingdom of the Kauravas more, fighting like the Pandavas for a slice of the pie. But we're at this stage where we fought enough saying, Ki bhai, thoda humko jaga de de, thoda humko jaga de de. And the Kauravas are not having any of it. They're like, nothing. You either, you know, just get out of here completely because the consciousness that's entrenched doesn't want to give any quarter. So we're at a stage where we realize both can't really coexist. They can coexist in our expression, but they can't coexist in our aspiration. We either aspire the way in the Bible, Christ says, man cannot serve two masters. You know, either he will despise one and serve the other. So we can't serve the world and we can't serve the divine. We have to serve one and then kind of bring the two into it. So this is what this fight is about. So when we're reading the Gita, Krishna is now revealing us the opposite process. How did spirit descend? And now Krishna is revealing us how spirit can reascend. And so that's what the Gita is about for us. So it's helpful for us not to get too caught up into the words that, oh, it's about Krishna, or it's about this little conversation between Arjuna and Krishna. No, it's about that devotee who has arrived at the moment where he's not sure, does he really want to fight? That's too hard. Like, do I really have to give up this? And I do really have to give up that? And, you know, I don't want to do all that stuff. So the devotee says to Krishna, who is our absolute divine nature, already present within us, the Guru, he says, take me to the middle of the battlefield. And the middle of our battlefield is that deep meditation, because you've got the Ira and the Pingla on either side, and Arjuna wants to go into the Shushumna, he wants to go inside. And this conversation is now taking place inwardly as a true intuition that the devotee receives when he enters deep meditation. So it's just helpful to come back to that context. My questions seem to want to keep sliding. All right. Because it's easy to get lost in the words and we forget, we think, and you know, somehow I have to align to what he's saying, but it's not him. It's the absolute highest aspect inside us that Krishna naturally represents who for each of us is the Guru, that's what Krishna is to Arjuna. He's the Guru, the voice of God, who in his divine intuitive perceptions is revealing to him his own self. So where we find ourselves now in chapter 9, which is, the chapter is titled, The Sovereign Lord of All. So Krishna is now kind of saying, starting to reveal who he truly is, because even though the whole point, the question that Arjuna started was, should I fight or should I not fight? Because he says, I don't want to kill my own uncles and aunts and my brothers. Just like we don't want to kill the same aspects of our own consciousness. You know, I don't want to fully let go of my egoic desires. I want to somehow bring them into God. So now Krishna starts to reveal, therefore, little by little by little, just keeps expanding him. He starts with the need for duty, the need to fight. This is what you've been given to do. But then he keeps expanding. And now he's at the point where he's trying to help Arjuna see the absolute larger picture, who really Arjuna can become. And he's saying, I am this already, and this is what you need to become as well. 
And therefore, we find ourselves in chapter 9, verse 21. So, Krishna is talking about how we relate to the world and what is it that we want from the world. And so he says, by following the scriptural regulations in their desire for celestial rewards, they endlessly repeat the cycle of ascent and return. The cycle of birth and death will continue as long as everything that we do has an expectation with it, which is, I want to be, you know, fulfilled with money, or I want better with this, I want more health, I need fame, I need success, I need recognition, whatever it is, as long as there is a reward-based reality, that means that the cycle needs to continue. Why does the cycle have to continue? Because anything in duality has to be balanced out. So, if you seek happiness outwardly, the weird part is that that means you will have to suffer. <laughs> because only then can ha that relative happiness come. Relative happiness is based on suffering. It's not based on absolutes. So, therefore, you have to return to suffer in order to experience relative happiness. If you want rel relative fame, therefore, you have to experience what it means to be completely ignored to then get relative fame. So, that's the caveat here. As long as you seek it outwardly, you're going to have to experience the opposite. And therefore, the cycle has to, it's like a self-perpetuating motion. To those who meditate on me as their very own, ever united to me by incessant inward worship, I supply their deficiencies and make permanent their gains. This is one of the most beautiful verses for me. Everything exists in God. Money exists, fame exists, health exists, you know, healing exists. But as long as we seek it as separate from him, we're going to have to go through this cycle, which is fine. That's the only way we learn. But Krishna is saying, if you just were to come to me entirely, I can supply all your deficiencies. I can make permanent any of the gains that you've had. But you're going to have to want me, not those gains, nor do you want those deficiencies kind of. So we really have to tune in because we follow, before he says, by following scriptural regulation, he's talking even if you are living according to the scriptures, as long as there's a reward-based hope, oh, I'm doing this puja because then Ganesh will bless me with whatever, you know, my son's exams are coming, so now is the time to really, you know, get into it. As long as there's anything to, it's like, or you could put your entire faith in Krishna, and then what needs to be taken care of is going to be taken care of. O son of Kunti, even the devotees of other gods, if they sacrifice to them with faith, are worshipping me alone, however improperly. I'm only having to supply it. It's like your dad has all the money ready to give you, but you're going to the money lender. And the money lender is taking the money from your dad and then lending it to you and now you have to pay interest on it for the rest of your lives. So that's how when we kind of try to bypass and say, give me this thing, it's still God who has to supply it, but now he has to supply it through the law of karma. He has to supply it through the law of cause and effect. He can't supply it directly to us because the only thing he can give us directly is himself. For I alone am in truth the enjoyer and lord of all sacrifices. Those, however, who worship me in lesser aspects, whatever that may mean, perceive me not in my true nature 
and so eventually they fall. Those who worship the gods go to them. Those who worship their ancestors go to the abode of ancestors. Those who worship the nature spirits go to them. But those who are my devotees come to me. Now, you know, we're not necessarily worshipping this person or the other or this god or our ancestors. But we worship so many other things. We worship our possessions. What is worship in the first place? You know, Krishna is, of course, putting it in a context that's from a time that's not so much ours, but we're constantly worshipping things. The word worship comes from that which we believe is worthy of our time, of our energy, of our adoration. We worship our possessions, we worship our home, we worship our, everyone around us. So Krishna is essentially saying that where you place your attention, you will be drawn to that again and again, no matter what you do. And that's both a beautiful thing, because if I only can shift my awareness to where I truly want it to go, then I will go there. But because we're drawn to these other things, we're just going to have to come to it again and again, both in this life and the next. And then, of course, the, con the process continues. Whenever anyone with a pure intention offers me a leaf, a flower, a piece of fruit, or water, and I love this, this is in parentheses, whether poured out or held up in a vessel. I mean, like, so specific. <laughs> if you offer me water, whether you pour it out or you hold it in a vessel, <laughs> I accept his offering as symbolic of his love. Whenever anyone with pure intention... Sometimes when you read this, you know, when you go to a temple, because for us, worship, for some reason, is such a... It's like there, it's a ritual, right? The concept of worship. You go to a temple and everybody's already made these plates, you know, these shops outside the temple with the right flower and the right prasad and the, Acha, ye Kali temple hai, to ye flower hai, and ye Ganesh temple hai, to ye prasad hai. And we get so caught up into what's the right thing as if, if I give Ganesh the wrong flower, <laughs> he'll be so upset with me that, you know, he won't give me what I'm looking for. And we just get caught up in the offering itself. And we forget that the idea is really that all of this is symbolic of the fact that we're trying to offer ourselves to God and we're really unable to offer ourselves to God. We, we, don't, we don't really want him to have us. We just want him to give us. So everything that was created was, all right, these are the different aspects of you. And this plate represents the entirety of you. And when you give that to God with pure intention, then he accepts it. Sometimes when you go to these temples, I remember my recent, our recent visit whenever that was to Dakshineshwar. And it's like, you get those millimeters of a second in front and it's like, oh yeah, chalo, and whatever's in your hand, the guy just grabs it and throws it in. And, and you are you know, like pushing off. And it's just, it's like, where's the worship? <laughs> you know, rather just sit somewhere in a corner. You don't have to see Kali in that stone necessarily, since she's everywhere. <laughs> but we just get so caught up in the, in the act, I don't even know if I get to actually give anything to her in that process. And Krishna is just so beautifully saying, if you give me even a leaf, a flower, a piece of fruit, all those things that we normally look at in during a puja, but he's just saying, all I'm asking of you is just a tiny little thing. I'm not even yet asking, give me all of you. 
It's like, can you just start with like, but you know, infuse something into that. Give me something. Like, fruit me kuch to dal ke do mujhe. You know, is there intention there? Is there some love in this process? I mean, what are you trying to, how will you give yourself to me? How will you learn to give yourself? For us, it's mostly symbolic. That's why we give money. That's why we give daan. You know, it's like we need something physical that says this is, this represents me. Because I don't know how to give anything else. I have not yet learned how to give my love. I mean, we're barely able to give love to human beings we say we love. You know, we're barely able to, we don't even know kaha se de us cheez ko. So these symbolic, that's why, you know, on Valentine's Day, the only thing I can do is give Narayani a rose and some chocolates. Like, this represents my love. But, you know, does it really? And the same is true for God now. Is, and Krishna is just trying to remind us that it's really the simplicity of the act that he's looking for. He's not looking for the big, you know, shosha around it. He's not looking, he's not, I mean, he's not saying, give me all your possessions and, you know, just give me everything and I'll take it all and leave you with nothing at all. Like, why don't you start with a leaf? He knows Amari Akkad kya hai, you know. You start with a leaf. I think you're more a leaf guy. You're not yet even a fruit guy. Start with a leaf. Let's see if I can kind of bring you up to a flower eventually. Because we don't know how to give ourselves to God. And so... All these aspects are meditations. Anything is learning to offer ourselves to God. And meditation becomes such a powerful tool to do that because we actually get to give our life force to God. We actually get to give something both tangible and intangible. That is ourself. That represents the sum totality of what we would call this body, this personality, this ego. We really get to give that. And that's why it's so powerful. Because meditation is not that I'm It is such a dynamic force where you take everything that you are, you take the Draupadi in you, you marry it through all the Pandavas and you bring it up to Krishna. And that's the experience we're trying to have. We're really trying to bring to Krishna something real, something tangible. Not just, you know, oh, every now and then I'll think of you only when I need something. Whatever action you perform with dispassion, O Arjuna, whether eating or performing spiritual rites or making gifts in charity or in austerities and self-discipline, dedicate that action in offering to me. And this is what now he's coming to. You start with this leaf, you know, so it's like, Acha, ye leaf, ja ke, All right, now I've learned ki thoda Process hai. Now the next time I'm going to offer him what I'm eating. There's this beautiful story of Vedvyas. Perhaps you've heard it. And Krishna. Um, the gopis and the gopals. You know, they're trying. They love Krishna, of course. And they know that he's so fond of his butter and his paneer and his curds. So every day they would make a lot of that stuff and want to go and feed him. And Krishna, in the story, lives on the opposite side of the river Yamuna. They're on one side, Krishna is on the other side. So one day while they're trying to reach Krishna, they find the river to be in flood. And so it's not easy to reach and it's really uh, quite a kind of a violent flow. So they're looking to how am I to get across. And they see over there Vedvyas, a rishi, meditating. And so they want to go up to him to take his help. So they ask 
Ved Vyas, could you help us get across, you know, with your powers? We know you're a man of great spiritual power. Could you help us get across? Because we've got all these things for Krishna that we really want to feed Krishna. And Ved Vyas says, everything's for Krishna. What about me? <laughs> you want me to help you and you're telling me, ye tum Krishna ko de de ho? So they very reluctantly said, hai, you know, you take half, you eat some and just leave some for Krishna. And Ved Vyas is hungrily eating and they're just watching the food quantity dwindle, dwindle, dwindle until finally they're able to keep some for Krishna and Ved Vyas has had his full. And Ved Vyas goes up to the river and he says to the river, if I have not eaten, divide up in part. And so they're like, <laughs> but immediately the river parts and he says, all right, go, you're done. So they go across and they find Krishna in his house. But when they reach, Krishna is asleep. And they find that very strange because they know that we come every time. Krishna is always excited to see us. He knows we're going to bring his favorite foods. And normally he would come out and greet them with great joy. And today he's asleep, so they have to go and wake him. And he kind of wakes up and he's like, oh, how lovely to see you. It's just, uh, you know, but I'm actually completely full. He's like, oh, you've already eaten? He's like, yeah, that guy across from the river already fed me. Which means everything that Vedvyas was eating was just going to Krishna. And that's the kind of offering. So therefore he could say, if I have not eaten, divide up in part because he did not eat. And so that's the power of that dispassion. That while we're involved, that vairagya, while we're involved, you just have to have that little bit of separation from getting too entangled and watch how Krishna, who is a living reality in us, gets kind of fed or anything that we receive goes to him, everything that we experience goes to him. And if we can feel, Paramahansa Yogananda said, if you can keep your attention, at the point between the eyebrows for 24 hours straight, he says, you could immediately become a master. He says, but that's just so hard to do. And if you try it, which we've tried, <laughs> you know, we've, we said, yeah, itna, but it's a shortcut, hai. 24 hours and we could be a master, let's do it. You put your attention there and then three seconds later, it's gone. And you put your attention there again. And we've tried everything. Setting alarms on our phone and reminders every 15 minutes. You know, like remind me to look up. And every time it rings, your attention's not there. So you have to be reminded. And you just realize it's just not easy. It's not easy to keep, keep that sense of offering going. And again, come back to the uh, experience of meditation. Why it's so important. Because it's the only way we will develop that vairagya, that dispassion. The simple act of the hong saw that we practice watching the breath and not getting involved in it yet, getting completely absorbed in it. I mean, it's such, a, it's such a dichotomy. You watch it, it's just going, you're doing nothing to it, but by the very act of watching it, you get so absorbed in it that you can't tell anymore, where's the breath and where's my mind? And where's God and where am I? And that experience is just available to us to be had in everything we do, in anything we do, but again, we're not able to. And because we're not able to, Krishna says, well, why don't you start with a leaf? Because you're not ready to give me your food. <laughs> food to hamare liye. Krishna ko de dunga to kya khaunga In this way, kind of like, you know, it's directional, aram se, in this way, 
nothing you do will bind you to either good or evil karma. Firmly anchored in me by self-renunciation, you will achieve freedom and will come to me. So this is the freedom that we have to achieve. We think our freedom is going to come in some magical moment. On one meditation, I'm going to sit and sab ur <laughs> But this is the freedom. I have to have freedom from the food that I'm eating. I have to have freedom from the people around me. I have to have freedom from the desires that I have. Not to suppress them. That's the beauty here. Khana khao aur mujhe de do. You know, go and get what you want. Go and experience life the way you want it. But keep just offering it to me. So that it doesn't stick to us at the end of the day. You know, Yogananda would say, if you place a coat in a smoky room, it's going to stink. So the world kind of, we catch the stink of the world and then we can't wash it off of ourselves. So you've got to have to figure out how we're going to be able to do this process. I am impartial to all. No one is especially hateful or dear to me. Those, however, who give me their heart's love are in me as I am in them. I mean, just some of these lines in here just kind of make you feel, wow, <laughs> I want to be there. I want to be in him. I want to experience that love because nothing else is going to satisfy us. And just knowing that Krishna is just so impartial to everything. We're so biased. Part of kind of Krishna telling us, I am this and I am that, is also kind of holding a mirror to us as like, this is how you're going to have to be if you want to come to me. You're going to have to be impartial, you're going to have to be able to tune into both the people who you consider good and the people you consider bad. You're going to have to learn how to love them equally. But of course, those who love you, those who give you everything, there's a natural affinity with them and you have to build that affinity, you have to live that affinity. Even an evildoer, if in his heart he rejects all else and worships me alone, should, because of that resolution, be counted among the good. It's a hard one to think of. You know, an evildoer. Uh, the other day, somebody, a friend of ours was visiting and she was just asking, how am I supposed to love a murderer? How am I supposed to love a rapist? How am I supposed to, you know, kind of... Because we just think of this as such a mental act. <laughs> you have to sit here and start loving everybody. <laughs> but it's not that way. And also to recognize, because we just don't know. And Krishna is saying, even an evildoer, in his heart, if he rejects all and worships me. And now, I'll never know who worships whom. And I'm just going to be able to judge. The thing is that we're kind of bound by our karmas. A lot of the evil acts that we also perform, we're almost like compelled to. We don't even want to do them. We don't want to get angry. We don't want to be getting upset. We don't like getting irritated. We don't like shouting at people. But we still do them. <laughs> For some reason, we're still doing them every day. And that's an important thing to realize. Like, I don't want to be doing any of this. I'm not this anger, like, I, I want to be joyful and I want to be loving and I want to be kind. Yet here it comes. <laughs> you know, yet the moment that guy says this to me, immediately that anger just erupts. But in my heart, I don't want to be that. But everybody is going to judge me for that anger that I am bringing out. Everybody is going to say, that's an angry man. 
So if I just kind of dial that up to somebody who does worse things, but I don't know what's in his heart and I don't know how, much, how compelled he is by just his previous actions. How much of that life does he truly want to live? And it's important for us to see that so that we don't judge other people so that in fact we are impartial the way Krishna can be with them. A lot of people trying to get to both of you. <laughs> and because of that resolution, they should be counted among the good. Now he counts them among the good. <laughs> Krishna is watching them do evil, but he's also watching their heart and he says, And we don't know because you also know a lot of people who look good, but you really don't know what's in their heart. And why they're doing that good. And Krishna is probably watching them and say, <laughs> Such a one will soon become virtuous and will achieve lasting peace. Amazing. He's doing a lot of evil, but in his heart, he worships me and is trying to not. Such a one will soon become virtuous and will achieve lasting peace. <laughs> o son of Kunti Arjuna, Know this for a certainty. And this is the most powerful word. My devotee is never lost. Never. No matter how many incarnations he goes through and does whatever he needs to do. But my devotee is never lost. That should give us some <laughs> encouragement. It doesn't look perfect right now. But I'm not lost. Krishna will never let me go too far astray. Taking shelter in me, all can achieve supreme fulfillment. Whether they be of sinful birth or women, we'll put some context to this, or Vaishyas or lowly Shudras. Now, of course, again, we have to realize Krishna is talking from a time where, where everything was so form-based. I mean, we boxed people and say, this is reality and this is all you can do. Shudra is this, Kshatriya is this, women's role is this, sinful birth is this. So Krishna is essentially saying, nothing can stop anybody. No matter where they are right now, no matter what society thinks of them, no matter what your kind of perceptions of they are, everyone can experience me. And that's, again, a very important reality for us because we love boxing people in. We love categorizing them. We love holding them into one corner and say, You know, I am spiritual and he's not. I mean, that very kind of thought has already, in Krishna's books, we've already gone in the other direction. His heart's not right. How easy it is then for true Brahmins who know God and for Rajarishis, the true Kshatriyas, who desire solely to serve God in all to attain me. Ah, you who have come into this transient world full of misery, worship me alone. I love how Krishna just says, this world full of misery. <laughs> Before he's just saying, oh, I've created this world and I'm only this misery and I'm only the joy. I mean, first he's telling you like, yeah, yeah, all that that you're experiencing, that's just me. And now he's like, yeah, I'm sorry, you're kind of stuck here a little bit. But if you worship me alone, and again, we get so caught up like, oh, Chab, you have to worship Krishna. And people sometimes ask us, which God should we worship, you know? 
हुज लाइक द मोस्ट पावरफुल शिवा को करें कि विष्णु को करें कि कृष्णा को करें कि गणेश को करें वी गेट ऑल काइंड ऑफ कॉट अप इन दैट फॉर्म दैट्स वाई इट्स इम्पॉर्टेंट टू कम बैक टू योग स्पिरिचुअल इंटरप्रिटेशन यू नो दिस इज वे वो वर्शिपिंग यू वॉन्ट पुट एनी फॉर्म हियर गो हेड कैन पुट योर मदर हियर इफ दैट हेल्प्स यू इफ दैट इंस्पायर्स यू बट दिस इज वेयर यू वॉन्ट वर्शिप फ्रॉम worship money from here even worship the world from here even and little by little you'll realize that ah oh, this is not what i'm expe- wanting to experience and the energy just naturally goes up and that's why krishna is to be worshiped because this is just what he represents and the last verse of our chapter keep your mind fixed on me be my devotee in ceaseless worship and adoration bow to me thus becoming one with me and knowing me as your highest goal you shall ever be my own what's beautiful about the relationship of krishna and arjuna is that it's very personal you know because um sometimes in our kind of over cosmicy energy we tend to want to make god you know this oh, he's just pure consciousness and well he is but he's also just everybody all around us and it's helpful to have that personal relationship with god it's helpful to feel that your devotion is really focused and channeled and for us that's the guru that's why the relationship of the disciple and the guru is so important is because at no point does it become vague at no point are you unsure what you are worshiping because sometimes people just use these big words oh, i'm just worshiping the universe and pure this and cosmic intelligence and i just like but conning your cosmic intelligence you know and so when you give it a definite clear direction which for us it means some form some understanding some clarity and that's why krishna is so beautiful because he represents god in perfect clarity to the devotee and our guru represents that for us that perfect clarity that's what i want to be I'm not confused. I'm not wondering mere ko kya banna hai. I don't even know what this bliss is, but I'm just talking about this bliss as if, you know, I experience it every day. I don't even know what this freedom is, but I'm just going on about freedom. I if I don't know what it is, at least I know my guru. <laughs> and so, therefore I worship him and therefore I give him everything and therefore I try to experience him here. Not because he's this form that, you know, is all powerful. He's just he's Krishna. He's condensed. He got into creation but you also figured out how to get out of creation and so this is who i'm going to give myself to now and so whoever that is for you doesn't matter don't get confused don't think we're endorsing one over the other he is yours and you get to choose who he is for you but whoever he is worship him adore him bow to him and try your best to unite your consciousness to his I was thinking that this spiritual path really is about an act of self-offering. I mean, who we are, who we think we are, what we have, what we have acquired, what I mean, it's like a culmination of lifetimes that we have spent and we have like invested in who we are right now and we are so proud of what we have become. <laughs> 
suddenly the realization comes where, wow, we have to offer all that back. And that's not an easy decision to make because it's going to take everything that you have and give it back wholeheartedly. So Yogananda used to say, an easy life is not a victorious one. And the spiritual path is all about that. It's just to, to kind of put out the energy and keep removing all those veils of self-definitions that we have created around ourselves. And what Krishna is saying to us, forget about who you think you are. Just start finding in your daily lives, what are those little things? What are the leaves that you are going to offer me daily? And he says here so beautifully, even a leaf, like saying to us, even the most insignificant thing that you think you are offering, offer that to me. And I was thinking that this is something very important that we could start thinking about it every day. What am I offering to Krishna, to my guru, to the divine? I mean, perhaps for each one of us it's going to be very different because we are at very different uh, levels and stages of the spiritual path. We have different responsibilities, different dharmas who that we need to fulfill. But we need to identify daily, where is my leaf? I mean, this is at the end of my day, where I'm going to place my leaf at Krishna's feet. And for some people will be to eat a little bit less. For other people will be to watch less Netflix every day. For other people will be to start a meditation practice. For those who are already meditating, perhaps is to meditate longer. I mean. You need to figure out, I mean, where is your leaf and how you are going to make that offering dynamic, magnetic, I mean, so powerful that Krishna would have no other choice but just come right there with you and holding your hand and just walking with you, showing you the way. Unfortunately, we always offer that leaf when we are in troubles, when we are you know, facing an obstacle, when we are afraid to lose something. Only then, Krishna, I have found my leaf. Where can I put it? I mean, that's like, means nothing to him. So find your daily leaf where you can so proudly put that leaf at Krishna's feet and every day make that conscious act of self-offering and you will see like in a very short period of time your consciousness will be transformed your relationship with Krishna will be real it won't be based on a book that you are reading it will be like a very dynamic relationship and communication that happens on a daily basis, and that's where Arjuna is asking us to be, in the same relationship that I'm with Krishna, we too 
should be. So find your way, find your leaf, and, and make that offering like really your way to salvation. <laughs>